Steve Roden, CIC, CRIS, is a senior broker and assistant vice president with MJ Holland Company. He is a commercial insurance expert specializing in transportation and cannabis industries. He also partners with Golden Bear Insurance, who currently is the only admitted carrier to provide insurance for cannabis companies in California. In this episode of the National Alliance's Resources Podcast, I speak with Reed about the emerging market of insuring cannabis growers and dispensaries. Well, I'd like to take just a few minutes to introduce you to our participants. So could you give us just a brief history about how you got into the insurance industry? Sure, yeah. So I've been in the insurance industry for going on uh, 14 years. I um, actually started in uh, the life insurance business, and it kind of evolved from there and uh, have been working with cannabis clients for about the last five years. Okay. And I'm always fascinated to know, did you start in the industry intentionally or did you kind of fall into it? No, it was totally by accident. Totally by accident. <laughs> I had an uncle that uh, that recruited me for um, uh, selling life insurance and then I got into the property and casualty from there and then cannabis obviously much later. So. Okay, so you've got a pretty varied career as well. Quite a few different aspects of the industry, yes. Excellent. So you mentioned just a few moments ago that you've been insuring in the marijuana space for about the last five years. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Okay. And in those last five years, how have you seen this industry and this market space evolve? Oh, I mean, it's it's practically unrecognizable compared to what it looked like five years ago. Um, you know, I mean, the industry's gone from being, you know, dominated by the London market uh, to the London market essentially wanting nothing to do with it. Um, you know, several international carriers and smaller regional domestic carriers got involved to kind of fill that vacuum. Uh, you know, you've had players in and out of the market on a surplus lines basis, uh, but most recently, and you know, probably as a sign of a normalizing marketplace. Um, Golden Bear Insurance Company became the first admitted carrier in the nation approved by a state to insure cannabis operations. Um, so that was a big step. You know, uh, the most Im important uh, evolution, I think, uh, probably is in coverage. You know, the industry uh, can now find coverage largely tailored to the types of risks it's exposed to, uh, so it can grow with some of the senses. You know, with a sense of prudent risk management rather than just wondering you know, if a particular uh, program is going to even be there in six months, you know. Um, you know, for example, there, it's, it's offered essentially on ISO forms now, which, you know, before was unheard of. So uh, we've got two other insurers now in the process of filing for admitted status. So, yeah, the can I mean, the cannabis industry is, is evolving rapidly, um, and it's, it has to, to keep pace with the evolving cannabis marketplace. Sure, because this seems to be one of those sectors that some things are flash in the pans and they come and they go pretty quickly, but this doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. I, th I think that's a fair assessment. Okay. So in your role as a broker with uh, MJ Hall & Company, how do you market to someone that is in the cannabis industry? Sure. So, I mean, really we market um, – not much differently than we would to any other line of business that, that we provide a market for. Uh, the exception here being that we only market in California, um, you know, because of the federal versus uh, state divide, which mm -hmm. is narrowing daily. But uh, you know, we limit our print advertisement in the journal and things like that um, to just California. Um, you know, most of our business comes from 
reliable relationships that we had already built with, with other retail agents and brokers. And we've, we purposely uh, communicate, you know, the old-fashioned way, phone, in person, so we can discuss the coverage and, and respond in a more personal manner to their questions. Um, you know, I mean, we advertise, we go to trade shows, we do uh, some email marketing. So it's, it's a little bit of everything, but generally word of mouth seems to be the most impactful. Okay, sure, because then somebody is getting a warm introduction to you and what you do versus just a cold call. Sure, absolutely. Okay. Now, you touched on this just a second ago about the differences between the federal and state laws, and anybody who's interested in getting in this space needs to understand that those are changing rapidly. What is your recommendation as far as any type of education that they may need to get or continue to keep up with all of those changes? Sure. So, I mean, just start with the basic proposition that nobody really wants to dabble in a market without understanding it first, and this is no different you know it's it's critical uh, in the cannabis industry for several reasons um, one being that the the regulatory environment is it's extremely dynamic um, is the insured uh, properly licensed in their municipality and with the state is their application for licensure in a, in a grace period uh, knowing how to uh, find this information and how failure to be licensed properly can affect uh, coverage you know um, secondly uh, cannabis businesses have historically been underground, and a lot of insurers may are still going to be kind of reluctant to fully disclose all the information about their business. Um, I think the best education is is getting to know a grower, you know, a manufacturer, uh, someone that runs a dispensary, and and ask for a site inspection. Um, you need to understand how the product is is grown, uh, how it's tracked through the uh, growth process with track and trace software, um, you know, how it's harvested and, and by who and under what conditions. I mean, there's just so many things that go into it, um, you know, whenever they're manufacturing, how is it, how's it manufactured, into what product, with what equipment, what, you know, ingredients are added, things like that. So um, it's, it's essentially an agriculture exposure. It's a liquor liability exposure, you know, a nutraceutical exposure. There's, there's several uh, different exposures in there that, that have to be addressed. So you need um, you need to know about the coverage, you know, mm -hmm. uh, property, general liability, workers' comp, uh, you know, all the same exposures uh, that your regular business would have, you're going to have some form of the same type of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, they have, there's actually cannabis training uh, universities that you can attend uh, with courses, you know, taught by chemistry professors. And I, I mean, I don't necessarily think that an agent needs to get a degree from THC University to, to ensure the market, but you know, saying that you, you need to know the applicable laws and, and read everything you can get your hands on, uh, you know, attend the conferences. Uh, the Bureau of Cannabis Control website is a wealth of information, um, and just reach the, the level of competency so you can properly help, help these guys protect themselves, you know. Right. Yeah, it sounds like there's quite a few resources out there, so that's really good for the agent. Now, on the flip side of that, now that you've given us some information about what the agency or the agent or broker can do to educate themselves and give a reference for what the client should look for, what do you, as the broker, look for in a client before placing a piece of business? Sure. So, I mean, I'm looking for, for agents who can kind of roll with the punches. 
you know, they communicate well and, and understand the importance of honest, straightforward feedback. Um, it's a new industry and we need all the market intel we can get. I mean, I need agents that will that are not afraid to tell me we're too expensive on this coverage and we're too cheap on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, someone that can help us keep up with the competition and make sure we know about, you know, potential coverage gaps as, as soon as possible so that if, if it's possible, we can address it in our coverage forms. Um, you know, someone that understands there's going to be a lot of questions because we need to thoroughly understand this risk before we can accurately price it and underwrite it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then someone who can relate all those things to their insurance so that they understand why we have to know all this, you know. Okay. All good things to look for in bringing a new client on board. What do you find is the most common misconception about this business and working in the cannabis space? Um, okay, so I would, I mean, common misconceptions is that usually, I mean, I would say if you bring the topic up with, with an, an agent, if, if it's, let's say it's someone that maybe you're not sure if this is the type of business that they write, um, you know, you're going to still get some of the, like, middle school kid giggling and laughing. You know, we're stuck with these sure. stereotypical images of, like, Cheech and Chong cutting up buds in a, in a back room, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality really is that these, I mean, these cultivation operations are highly sophisticated nurseries, and they're usually managed by organic chemists. Um, you know, experienced businessmen and women that are, you know, they're monitoring their staff, their inventory, their bottom lines, um, you know, just building new paradigms and on new characteristics. And I mean, the leaders in the industry are, uh, I mean, they're innovative, they're compassionate, and they're shrewd. You know, I mean, they know they know how to run a business, and they're they they do it for just just the same reasons that anybody else starts a business is that they want to they want to help these people that, that need this product and they want to make money, you know. So that's, uh, you know, that's some of those misconceptions is still come overcoming that stigma of, you know, a pothead trying to run a business. It's just it's not really the case anymore. Gotcha. So it's realistically, it's a business just like any other. And unfortunately, based on the business itself, it has more inherent risk that you might not see in something else. But just trying to get the marketplace to understand that this is just a business and we as the insurance industry need to respond as such. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Now, what kind of differences do you see in writing coverage for this type of a client versus maybe some other type of a uh, client who has a business producing a, a different type of product. Right. So, I mean, it's it, it's it is the same and it's it's different. You know, I mean, all the carriers. So, as far as like, um, uh, you know, you have the, we were still having the state and federal law differences, which mm -hmm. you know, carriers who have have entered the market um, have considered the the risk to their business in writing insurance for cannabis operations. Um, you know, given that consumption and sale is still against federal law. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, alternatively, medicinal and recreational cannabis is legal, or both legal in California, and uh, our commissioner, Dave Jones, is, is in actively encouraging admitted carriers to file, um, to file policies so that these businesses can operate like a legal business with the same rights to coverage. Um, you know, the stance of most carriers still, though, is that they're not interested in this exposure until the federal and state laws are, are more closely aligned. Okay. And I have also, in my own research and talking with different people in this space, there are a number of banking issues that 
people don't seem to understand that are created based on that state and federal law difference, correct? Yes, the banking is, is an ongoing problem, um, and it's a big problem. You know, I, mean, I, I have agents uh, telling me all the time, you know, their insurers are having to buy 20, 30, 40 or more money orders at a time to pay bills, rent, you know, things like that. So you consider that on, on top of the normal risk uh, that you would expect from a regular business. Um, you know, cannabis businesses are more vulnerable to, to theft and violence because mm -hmm. they're carrying these large sums of cash. Uh, they're keeping large sums of cash on their premises. Um, the state of California, or so the, the general attorney and the uh, uh, state treasurer are working on uh, developing a state bank or uh, some, other, some other financial institution that's not federally chartered uh, to provide some other safe banking accommodations that will hopefully um, help solve some of the issues that these guys are having with that. Okay, and just to be clear, the, the issues that we're talking about is because this is still federally illegal, that then means that the bank, excuse me, that then means that the owner of the dispensary themselves cannot bank at a normal banking institution. So they then have to go out and get these money orders and some other forms of payment. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, okay. they're just, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, um, it's not feasible for them to, to just carry cash. I mean, some, some of the things that you got to pay bills for won't even accept a, a wad of cash, you know. Right. I mean, it's just, so that's, that's the, the main challenge, I, I would say, um, along with the fact that it's, it's dangerous to transport those huge amounts mm -hmm. of cash, especially when everybody knows you're doing it. Right. And the other issue that we're also seeing, too, is that because they can't bank at these federal institutions, that now also means that they don't have access to the small business loans that uh, some other entrepreneur might be looking into to get their business started. And when that occurs, now we're looking to different investors and perhaps multiple investors who now need to be covered by liability coverage, right? So we're creating all kinds of problems. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know that we have to we have to figure out how to um, how to be, how to get these guys access to the investment dollars that they that they need to grow. Um, you know, without without hindering their ability to do so. Mm -hmm. And with those investors and each of these entities now being a part of the business itself. We're now looking at multiple entities that need to be covered by that liability, which should we miss one and something happen, that puts the agent in a perilous situation for A&O. It could. It could, yeah. I mean, okay. it's, it's one of the things where you want to you be really clear on, you know, who your named insureds are because it's, mm -hmm. it's extremely important. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the client themselves, um, and I know that you're the broker, but your agent, when they start looking at onboarding a new client, do they go out to the client's operation and do some sort of on-site inspection prior to actually placing the business like you were alluding to before? Uh, really nothing prior to, to writing the business. I mean, okay. we, so we will do a, a site inspection after the fact, um, but I mean, generally, we, you know, we're relying on the application um, Google photography of, of the buildings and premises a lot of times and just responses to questions on the application that might need further clarification. So, you know, we can go back to the agent and say, can you get us a little more information on this or, you know, um, explain why they're doing that. Um, okay. You know, a lot of the operations are, are just starting to sign leases and mm -hmm. making preparations to, to open for business. And we find that you know a lot of the inspections are coming back showing that there's renovations or improvements still being completed. Um, 
So, I mean, that can be problematic because we can't always see the end result of the work. Mm -hmm. And uh, we may not be able to address any, you know, deficiencies that are, you know, subject to warranties, limitations, or exclusions in, in our policy forms. Um, you know, ideally, we would, we would perform inspections prior to policy issuance. Um, it, it would be very advantageous in getting a first-hand look at the operation, but it's just not realistic in a lot of cases. So we just talked a little bit about the on-site inspections. In a perfect scenario, if the uh, process of construction was completed, what would you be looking for in a client to make their risk insurable versus perhaps another client that would knock them kind of out of what you're looking for as an uninsurable risk? Sure. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, the typical things that, you know, you would look for in any other, in any other type of risk, um, you know, your uh, security, uh, your uh, loss controls as far as, you know, things for, uh, you know, do they have alarms, do they have uh, sprinkler systems, um, do they have live armed security guards or 24-hour, you know. So just all the things that would, that would essentially make um, any business safer and a more attractive risk is, would, would apply, but almost to a, a more crucial degree, um, especially with the security. Um, you know, just because of the fact that it's it's cash heavy, and I mean, let's face it, marijuana is going to be maybe like a target risk. You know, I mean, it could be uh, as far as theft goes. You know, it's probably a, a hot commodity for the most part. So uh, the security is crucial, and these guys are, are going to have 24-hour live security, which is not something that you will find to be required for most other businesses. So, I mean, there, there's differences, but it's a lot of the same. You know, it's a lot, it's a lot of the same type of things, just to a, a more important degree. You gotta do it even more for the cannabis. Okay. Now, do your agents, in conjunction with that, when we're talking about what they look for, do they also, on the back end, do they have some sort of a risk management protocol in place for each of the clients that you do write business for? Uh, not really. I mean, really, no like risk management protocol that would address like evolving risk, um, other than just periodic, uh, you know, license uh, verification and um, you know annual inspections and audits. Um, but you need to understand that licensed cannabis operations are are or will be highly regulated. It's not all taken effect yet in California, um, but it will be the, what. It, Regulations that have not taken effect will be before the end of this year. So, um, everything's got to be tested and monitored. Local co uh, code enforcement and police working together with businesses to ensure that they're operating as safely as possible uh, for everyone. You know, employees, patrons, um, and then you know, California's legalizing cannabis to reduce the risk associated with the with the black market. You know, I mean, the state, state of California regulations in this industry's risk management protocols uh, for their enforcement protocols will ensure that compliance. Okay, so it's not just like a regular business, maybe a fast food business, which of course is probably not the best comparison. Um, but as we're thinking about this, it's not just the business itself, but now we have the state government and perhaps at some point the federal government that's going to get involved that while we're requiring X number of things from the client themselves, they also have an entire checklist from someone else that they have to adhere to. So perhaps our protocol doesn't have to be as stringent because someone else has already beat us to it. Correct. Okay. 
That makes sense. So along those veins, and we keep talking about these state differences between the state and the federal, is there a difference between ensuring a marijuana clinic that is for medicinal use only, which is what most of the states already have in place, versus the recreational use dispensary, which is now starting to be approved in more states? There's not a whole lot of difference as far as the rating, uh, as far as the rating of a risk goes. You know, a lot of them are are both now. I mean, they'll be um, if they maybe have been operating as medicinal for some time and then are going to the recreational and adult use as well. Um, certain municipalities, um, actually where where we're located in, in Northern California, um, are recreational doesn't actually go live until June 1st, um, just because. The legislation went through really quickly, and some of the municipalities just weren't ready for it on January 1st when it when it the recreational uh, technically took effect. So some of those are still being are still being worked through. But other than that, um, you know, it's for the most part it's essentially the same. Uh, there's not a lot of difference in the rating, you know. Okay. So it's it's they're going to be similar risk, and especially the fact that a lot of them are going to do both. Okay. They just need different licensures in order correct. to sell yeah, it's a either way. License. Yes, okay. That's correct. And then I learned um, that different states have some of these dollars going to different programs. Can you talk a little bit about that? That some of those recreational dollars that are coming in for the sale in that state, where are those things going to? Yeah, you know, I mean that's that's not. I'm not 100% clear on that yet. I mean the the, the new tax that took effect. Um, this year is is an additional 15% excise tax on top of the the regular sales tax for the adult use. Um, now the recreate, I'm sorry, the uh, medicinal is not going to be subject to that additional um, mm -hmm. 15%. Sure. Um, so it's going to stick with the regular sales tax. Uh, but as far as that goes, um, you know, if it, I don't know that it's necessarily earmarked for anything in particular. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the states, whenever they are pushing, trying to push legislation through, you'll see it get tied into education. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of the revenue is going to go to fund education and things like that. Um, didn't necessarily go down that way here. Um, there hasn't been a, a lot of talk. I'm sure there are plenty of special interest group with their uh, with their eyes on it. But as far as the as far as that goes, I'm not aware necessarily of anything that it's uh, supposed to be going going to specifically. Okay. What I've seen so far has been more education like you were alluding to and then also some infrastructure. So even though a lot of people are not proponents for having the cannabis come in, whether it's medicinal or recreational, it doesn't look like, as we talked about before, that it's going away. But even though it is here, it is bringing some good to other parts of the state revenue as well. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Now, when you start looking at these new clients, and I know that you're the broker, but are there particular packages that you have set up for some of these dispensaries? And, and if so, what are some of those components that you would present to a new client? Sure, sure. So uh, generally in the package, we're, we're going to include, um, you know, a cannabis package, which is going to be premises, general liability, and all of your property, whether it's buildings, greenhouses, uh, cannabis stock, uh, you know, things of that nature. Um, then we have we, we write a separate policy for the products and completed operations. Um, we can also include um, excess liability for both the products and the, the premises liability, and we can do all the cannabis stock, uh, and it's all on an admitted basis. Uh, then we also have a separate 
well, I wouldn't say separate, but a kind of a, a, a side component there for um, testing labs. We can do the professional for testing labs, and that's on a non-admitted basis. Okay. So we have uh, all these opening now where, um, you know, the cannabis has, before it can go to market, it's got to be tested uh, to post the THC levels. They, they test for pesticides, contaminants, mold, things like that. Okay. And we have we can we can help these we can write the professional liability for these guys that are doing the testing as well. Wow. So there's a lot of different components that you really can just customize based on the particular client and their need. Quite a few. Quite a few different options. Yeah. Okay. What coverage out of that package that you're typically offering do you see that is most often not included in the final package after presentation, or what's not being taken by the client? Sure. Yeah, I would say probably the most common there is going to be the products liability. Um, you know, more often than not, that's where the unless unless they it's a really property driven exposure, most of the premium is in the products uh, liability. So a lot of times, what we'll see is you know they're coming in uh, just getting started. They're going to get the minimum amount of property and liability that they need to basically get a landlord off their back. And then a lot of times they'll come back later and add the products liability once they're up and running and have some revenue coming in. Okay. So I would say that it's it's fairly common um, to present the products and not bind it and then they come back six months later and want to buy it. So, so it's not a they don't understand the need problem, it's more of a financial piece. Yeah, I would say so. I think that they that they well understand the need for the most part. Um, they just know that they need to have some revenue coming in before they can spend that. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about the product itself. So when is it as the plant starts growing, and we've talked a little bit about the tagging system, when it initially pushes up through the dirt, it is a, a crop at that point, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. When it pushes through the dirt and it's now a crop, when does it stop being a crop and when does it now start being a product that needs to be insured under a different type of policy? Okay. So basically, so, okay, so there's a program called uh, Track and Trace, which essentially uh, monitors the life cycle of the cannabis plant from, from uh, seed to sale, you know, cradle to grave. Um, at any given point of time, uh, you know, a cannabis grower can prove what number of plants they have or had and at what stage in the life cycle the plant was in. So like whenever a loss occurs, this uh, this program is going to tell us, you know, we had X amount in seed stage, X amount in, uh, you know, flower stage, and this amount in vegetative. So they have a different, the plants have a different value based on, uh, you know, what stage of life they're in at a, at a particular time. Um, so, so we address the valuation with an endorsement that um, assigns a, a value to the plant all the way from the seed germination cycle through uh, vegetative and flowering cycle. Um, you know, the mother plants are valued differently. You know, more usually valued at more than the than the clones. Um, and then we have an endorsement that clears any uh, confusion for the definition of stock. So that appears in a the unendorsed, you know, building a personal property coverage form, and it provides a coverage grant uh, if growing plants experience a loss at some point during their growth cycle, uh, subject to the terms and conditions, you know, set forth in the policy. 
Okay, so I, I would say that a lot of people don't understand that when you're talking about insuring in the cannabis space, that there are a multitude of different types of policies that have to be taken into consideration, meaning is the client a grower? or are they part of the dispensary? And are we going to insure the crop or the product? Right. Okay. And essentially it's, you know, essentially it's nothing more than time that decides, you know, what, whether it's a crop or whether it's stock. You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. just where it happens to be at that point in its life cycle. Um, so the coverage form addresses that as well with the valuation. Okay. And we've talked a little bit about because of the nature of this space that there are certain inherent exposures that are particularly faced in this segment. What are some of those particular exposures and how might we best mitigate them as an industry? Sure. So I would say that, um, you know, security, just going back to that, is, is um, probably the most crucial part of that just because they're at an, an inherent risk of, um, you know, theft for one, um, because it's it's heavily cash and because it's a, a target commodity, um, you know, and, and then what happens is you tend to see um, less, I guess well, I would say less sophisticated, whenever whenever someone's breaking in, you know, it's and they're gonna rob, rob your dispensary, let's say, um, maybe whereas if it was a more sophisticated uh, job, you know, they break a pane and they reach in and they unlock the door. And a lot of times, what we see on these guys is somebody's just going to—they—they just drive a truck through the front wall. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it might be a little bit different uh, technique. So it's—it's it's almost like a less sophisticated, you know, um, uh, job there. So the security is—is is crucial. And I mean, these guys have—they're going to have 24-hour, um, you know, live security. Usually they're they're armed, um, but I don't believe that that's required by law right now that they're armed. Okay. Um, so, but it is a it's definitely I would say the most important part to mitigate any of those exposures that they have that can't be covered um, by insurance right now. So, uh, okay. I would you know like the in transit is mm -hmm. the problem. Um, it's essentially a motor truck cargo exposure, and I'm not aware of any carriers that. Are, are willing to ensure that exposure, um, so that's a big one. You know? And is, is that crop and product in transit or cash in transit? It would be all the above. Okay. It would be all the above, yeah. So, um, you know, we I've had clients tell me that, you know, they, they really can't find a way to cover that exposure, so essentially what they're doing is, you know, they just take matters into their own hands. You know, I mean, they're hiding in plain sight. I've, I had one tell me that they haul their cash and their product, and they have they bought a decommissioned ambulance. Oh, um, okay. Oh, yeah, that's just, one way. Yeah, exactly. So they're you know they're they're getting creative to uh, to mitigate some of those uninsurable exposures, um, but at some point, you know, the market will respond and and you know there'll be more more options to to cover these guys. It's just still uh, you know so limited. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to the difference in laws, you know. Okay, and are we seeing in this particular segment, is it more theft externally or is there theft internally from the employees that are handling the product? That's that's probably, I would say, more of an exposure than the external. I think the, um, the heavy security presence uh, maybe scares some of that off, um, but you do have some of, you do have the internal, you know, that's a problem also. Um, 
because it's it's cash. You mm-hmm. know, I mean that's and, and because um, just because of the fact that it's everywhere. I mean, right. they literally have cash. Everything they're doing is with cash. So it's a lot of places for it to go missing. You okay. Know. So another mitigation factor there could be to properly vet your employees well beforehand and in the employment and onboarding process. But then also that security you were talking about, um, perhaps cameras behind the counters, um, and then also enforced security in presence, meaning having someone there guarding the premises, just having that extra set of eyes, I think, would be helpful for the owner's peace of mind. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, tw- like most of these guys have, um, you know, like a 365-degree no-blind-spot camera system. So they have, um, you know, they have these inside their inside the dispensaries, inside the grow operations. Um, if it's a dispensary, they will have them inside and outside of their vault and safe so that they see everything that comes in and out of the out of the safe room. Um, so, you know, they're they're um, they're working on, on keeping it secure, but you know, unfortunately right now there's just certain exposures that are, are essentially just uninsurable. Right. Okay. And then talking about some of those things that are uninsurable, what are some of the exclusions that you're seeing in the contracts that really start limiting some of the coverage? Yeah, so it's it's fairly common to see carriers that'll quote uh, general liability coverage for uh, for a cannabis operation and exclude products and completed operations, um, you know, which essentially leaves the insured with a slip and fall coverage, mm-hmm. um, and and with no coverage for the more likely exposure of, of the actual products. Um, so I think the important part there is to just clearly communicate the coverages to your insureds um, and help them understand, you know, that this is an option for you. Um, while you're getting started, you know, we understand it's cheaper, but keep in mind it doesn't cover everything you probably need to cover as your operation evolves, you know. Okay. And aren't you seeing some exclusions um, when you were talking about the landlord, just trying to get the landlord off your back? Isn't there uh, some exclusion language in the contract itself or the whomever the landlord is about having a cannabis business within their building? Well, so that that's a possibility also. You know, we have a lot of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we see a lot of <clears throat> submissions on lessor's risks uh, coming that are, you know, coming out of standard markets, you know, sometimes, you know, State Farm or, you know, Allstate are really standard vanilla risk that all of a sudden they've taken on a cannabis-related tenant and now their lessor's risk policy is, is uninsurable, you know. So um, we can we can fit those guys in our program also. We can write the lessor's risk with cannabis tenants as well. Okay. So uh, truly, the cannabis owner, whether it's a dispenser or a grower, we're seeing not only the differences between federal and state with the laws and that conflict there, we're also seeing the banking issue and then now contract exclusions where the landlord may not want to have them as part of their lessees. So really somebody has to have some pretty tough resolve to get into this segment of the business, right? Yeah, it's not a uh, it's not an overnight deal. You know, it's uh it's expensive to get into compliance with everything and it's a lot of work and and follow-up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just going getting through the bureaucracy of applying for licenses and permits with all the different municipalities. So I would definitely say it's not you know, it's not for somebody that just wants to 
fall backwards into it. I mean, you got to take some planning for sure. Sure. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the usage of the product. Is there any concern whatsoever about using the product in public for those states that are now recreational use as well? Uh, so, I mean, it's, again, I can only speak to California, but mm -hmm. but generally, it's not the it's not allowed in in public. Okay. Um, you can't use it in like outdoor public spaces, you know, sidewalks, parks. But is it really enforced? Eh, maybe not. Uh, just kind of depends on where you are. Uh, San Francisco has a club that allows on-site consumption. And technically, you could apply for a license for on-site consumption if you can meet their laundry list of requirements to qualify for the license. And, you know, there's also been a buzz that, that Sacramento is, is considering an on-site consumption as well, but it's not, it's not there yet. Um, the main concern there seems to be that the access is restricted to 21 and up and that the areas where they do allow consumption is not visible um, from public areas or other non-age restricted areas. Okay. Well, my mind immediately goes to when you start talking about public consumption, we're all familiar with the Dram Shop Act and how that relates to liquor liability. How or would there be some concern here, something similar might apply because if you consume, there is an impairment level at that point. Right, yeah. So so California is a personal uh, responsibility state and the civil code um, protects, you know, restaurants, bars, other uh, providers of uh, liquor from liability from it unless it's being served to a minor. Um, so there's no, there's really no similar law protecting providers of cannabis um, and nothing even that's, that's been introduced into legislation. Uh, but do we, you know, as far as a truly having the same problem as like over service like a bar does, probably not. You know, I mean, most, most states uh, impose dram shop liability on bars for serving obviously intoxicated people. But, you know, consider with cannabis purchases, you know, THC in whatever form, maybe they buy it on a Friday, take it home and consumes a little or, or a lot, you know, two, three weeks or, or a month from now, you know, and, he's, and then he's in an accident after that and it's found to have presence of THC. Does the dispensary overprovide? Yeah, I mean, maybe not. Okay. Um, and why did that driver have it? You know, I mean, the, the analysis is, is probably more akin to a person who has consumed a medication that makes them drowsy maybe. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I don't think um, people who are just um, starting to think about getting into this space understand there is an incredible amount of testing that is done. And then, of course, um, when you're doing the research and development on the THC levels, can you talk a little bit about how those are calibrated or calculated and why it's so important when you're getting into this space? Yeah. So there. So. There, a lot of the regulations that are taking place since the adult use passed has to do with um, testing the levels of THC for potency and um, minimizing the chances of someone accidentally taking more than they wanted to. So a lot of that goes, a lot of that relates back to the edibles. Um, you know, there's been no, until now, no regulation on um, the, the, the amount of THC that they can put in a particular edible product. So you may have a candy bar or let's say like a brownie or a cupcake that, that, they've, um, that they've made and maybe it's got a thousand milligrams of THC and it tells you that you want to take that, that maybe that's 10 doses. So 
what they've done actually that's going to take effect June 1st in California is they've made it to where you can't have more than 100 milligrams of THC in one package. So they're hoping to, I guess, you know, cut down on, oh, I took, I took, I ate this whole brownie and it was crazy, <laughs> you know, that, right. that sort of thing. So um, just trying to, um, to make sure that people are, are aware of what's in there and the potency level and things like that. Okay. And then, and then of course, also for contaminants, you know, mold, mm -hmm. um, uh, mildew, things like that. So to take it back to another type of consumable that we're all familiar with would be alcohol. So when you look at the, um, the label on the alcohol bottle, it'll tell you what the alcoholic content is. So this is very akin to that. It's telling you what the THC level is. Very much. Very okay. much so. Okay. Well, I'm glad to see that that part is at least being regulated so you know how much you're actually consuming. Yeah. But to talk about the THC levels just a bit more, there is an enormous amount of testing that goes into what type of a plant produces the, the THC and the amount of content. And then on the grow side, when you're talking about the medicinal grows, then you really need to focus in more on that THC content and how much there is, how it will affect people, what the strains are. So there is really a lot of science that goes into creating the product. Yes, absolutely. You know, they, they different growers try to isolate particular uh, traits in, in a strain that they can, you know, whenever making their own, mm -hmm. um, you know, certain ones you'll see and they'll say, you know, this is good for uh, appetite or this one's good for sleeping or this one is good for um, you know, anxiety and it won't make you fall asleep or things like that. So, mm -hmm. um, and then you have some people that are looking to, that are looking for certain things to not be there. So it's like, I need this one for anxiety, but I want to make sure it doesn't give me the munchies. You know, they can kind of isolate, you know, different traits and particular strains and things like that. So, um, I mean, they're doing, they're doing a ton with it for sure. Okay, so this is why one would need to get a degree from the Cannabis University, right? right. Yeah, so you understand all this. Okay. Well, you've talked a lot with us today about the product and the grow and just how the industry is changing. What has been your singularly most challenging situation to date that you can think of while working in this space? I would say really the most challenging thing for me has, has, been, finding, has been finding the agents that I want to work with. Um, you know, agents that understand uh, the product and are willing to put in the work necessary to build a solid program for their insurance, um, not somebody that wants to, you know, that thinks that you can just answer a couple of questions on an application and get a number. I mean, it's more, it's more, much more involved than that. You know, at some point in the, in the distant future, could it be commoditized like that? Possibly, but, but right now, it's just, it's just not. It's on a, it's on a per case basis. We need a lot of information, and the challenge is finding, for me, has been finding agents that truly understand that and can be our partner, um, in writing that type of business. Okay. So, as far as being a partner of yours, what advice would you give an agent who is thinking of becoming your partner or is wanting to get into insuring in this space? Yeah, I would say communication is key. The more information you can get us, the better. Even if, even if you think it doesn't matter or um, you know it's not important to what we're trying to do, any information, feedback on rates, feedback on coverage, um, any information that they can give us, just communicate it to us, um, and it's going to help us improve uh, the product. Okay. And last question, Reed. Where do you see, based on your experience just in the last five years, where do you see this industry headed even in the next 10? 
Ooh, that's t- I mean, I, I, hopefully it will be descheduled, you know, and there will be laws in place that, um, you know, can socially engineer restitution to, to these communities that have been, uh, you know, just ravaged by drug incarcerations. I think we're a ways off from, from full federal deregula- deregulation, um, but we'll have hopefully sufficient deregulation for banking to occur and for, you know, your CVSs and Monsantos to invest, you know, something something that will make the company, you know, large companies comfortable um, investing a lot of money, you know, and, and there's no telling, it could be big tobacco or, or it could be, you know, pharmaceuticals, nobody knows, but someone's going to get you know, once there's an, a sufficient deregula- deregulation to get the investment dollars flowing, um, I think the sky's the limit. Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much for sharing all of your expert wisdom and your knowledge with us and some words of advice for those who are wanting to get into this space. We really appreciate you taking the time today, Reed. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out all of our podcasts at scic.com forward slash podcasts.